Whitehall, July 16, 1832. Sir, I am commanded by His Majesty to call your most serious and immediate attention to the state of the colliery districts in the county of Durham. It appears that for some time past, extensive and determined combinations and conspiracies have been formed and entered into by the workmen for the purpose of dictating to their masters the rate of wages at which they shall be employed, the hours during which they shall work, the quantity of labor they shall perform, as well as for imposing upon them many other regulations relating to the conduct and management of their trade and concerns in pursuance of this system and in furtherance and support of these demands which are as unwise and injurious to the authors of them as they are violent and unjust in themselves tumultuous assemblages of people have been gathered together to the great danger of the public peace at which the most seditious and inflammatory discourses have been delivered and the most illegal resolutions adopted the natural consequences of such proceedings have shown themselves in outrages of the most atrocious character, in menaces and intimidation, in the injury and maltreating of peaceable and industrious laborers so as to endanger their lives, and in the commission of murder in the face of an open day. In these circumstances, I am commanded by His Majesty to express His confident expectation that all who hold commission of the peace will act with the promptitude, decision, and firmness which are so imperatively required, and they will exert themselves for the prevention and suppression of all meetings which shall be called together for an illegal purpose, or which shall in the course of their proceedings become illegal, for the detection and punishment of all unlawful combination and conspiracy, as well as all outrage and violence, and for the encouragement and protection of His Majesty's peaceable and well-disposed subjects. I have the honor to be, sir, your humble servant, Melbourne. early 2nd century AD, Pliny the Younger, who was serving as governor of the Roman province of Bithynia on the Black Sea, wrote to Emperor Trajan to report on a destructive fire in the city of Nicomedia. Strong winds had been the main cause of the fire, but also, Pliny complained, the citizens of Nicomedia had made no effort to save any buildings. They just watched it all burn. Maybe, he suggested, the emperor would consider setting up a professional fire brigade of perhaps 150 men. 
So the next time a fire broke out, the city wouldn't needlessly lose quite so much real estate. The emperor wrote back, It comes to your mind, based on examples elsewhere, that a fire company can be established at Nicomedia. But let us remember that the area around Nicomedia is afflicted by political factions. Whatever name we give it, for whatever purpose, before long this fire company will transform into a secret society. A better policy is to provide equipment and to encourage property holders to use it, and if need be, we can press the crowd into the same service. Classical historians can't say with confidence which factions might have troubled the emperor so much. The word that is translated here as secret societies is a Greek loanword, heteria, which technically just means society or association, but somewhere along the way it had gathered around it so much suspicion and connotation that it essentially meant people who were up to something. They may have been local Greek families jockeying for power in the provincial political structure. Bithynia was on the Roman periphery, so it's also not impossible that Trajan was concerned about the possibility of outright rebellion. Another plausible answer is that these hetaria weren't actually political at all, but something closer to sporting clubs like the blue and green chariot racing societies of the Byzantine period, who didn't stand for any social arrangement more complicated than their own perseverance. It's also possible, though, that these groups could have been professional societies, roughly similar to the guilds that would emerge in Europe in the Middle Ages. The Latin collegium, from which we get our word college, referred to a wide range of societies. There were, for example, religious collegia, like the Quindecemviri Sacris Faciundis, also known as the College of Sibylline Priests, because it was their duty to safeguard and periodically consult the sacred Sibylline scrolls. It was a Sibyl herself, the legend tells us, the Sibyl of Cumae, that transferred the Sibylline scrolls into Roman hands. She had traveled to Rome from her cave in Naples, carrying nine scrolls. Arriving in Rome, she paid a visit to Tarquinius, the last of Rome's kings, and quoted him a price for their sale. Tarquinius tried to haggle down the price, but at his first counteroffer, the Sibyl threw three of the scrolls into the fire and told him the price was the same for the remaining six. Tarquinius balked at this new offer, and the Sibyl threw three more scrolls into the fire, demanding the same price for the final three. Tarquinius then asked his priests if these remaining three scrolls were actually worth anything. After examining them, the priests instructed him to buy them at any price, gnashing their teeth at the loss of the other six scrolls. Roman leaders would consult the Sibylline books many times over the years, whenever the Senate determined that a prodigium had occurred, an event so strange it could be nothing other than a wrathful communication from the gods, a plague perhaps, or a great flood, or maybe just an adverse turn in the war against Carthage. When Rome's Sibylline books were lost in a fire in 83 BC, a delegation was sent to Cumae to transcribe a copy from the original. But there was no original to be found, so the delegates just wrote down whatever they could glean from the local oral tradition. It was the Queen Decumviri's task to determine which verses were authentic enough to be included in the new volume. Everyone pretended that this was just as good as what they had before, and the new Sibylline books survived for another half a millennium. There were secular collegia as well as religious, though maybe that's not quite the way to put it, since in pre-modern times, everything was a little bit religious. In fact, that's what the word religious meant originally, pervading everything, connecting everything. Collegia of various trades, shoemakers, junk dealers, linen weavers, and dozens of others were established to, it would seem, advance the interests and positions of these trades. 
They would also, though, hold feasts in honor of the patron goddess of crafts and trades, Minerva, and which activity was primary, the religious or the professional, is hard to confirm. But the fact that they had feasts and were sometimes suspected of promoting unrest was enough to create a broad association with the guilds that would arise in medieval Europe a few centuries later. The earliest meaning of the word guild in the northern European languages of the early Middle Ages is, in fact, a banquet or feast. Banquets make temporary fellowships out of those who attend them, or at least the good ones do. But more than that, a guild feast in pagan Scandinavia was ceremonial, generating ritual bonds and obligations. Attendance was typically mandatory along family lines, and the attendees were expected to help bear the cost of food and drink. The same term, guild, was also the word used in early Germanic and Gothic languages when translating the Greek for tribute or tax in biblical passages, and a similar word, gegildan, meant to repay or restore. So in this single word, guild, we find the seeds of solidarity, membership dues, and restitution. In early England, the first guilds, sometimes called social guilds, were mutual aid societies organized around saints' feast days. The brethren and sistren of these societies, women were actually pretty well represented in the guild system of this time, took as their primary mission the upkeep of a statue or altar of the name saint. In return, guild members would be taken care of when sick or injured and given a proper burial when they died. Many guilds of this time also had a quasi-policing function in an era when professional policing was still several centuries in the future. If a guild member was assaulted or stolen from, it was the duty of the rest to track down the assailant. As the motto went, if one misdo, let all bear it. Let all share the same lot. In some areas, these social guilds began to consolidate over time into guilds spanning entire towns and cities, with every free citizen a guild member. The town guild of Berwick-upon-Tweed on the Scottish border wrote in its bylaws, quote, that where many bodies are found side by side in one place, they may become one and have one will, and in the dealings of one toward another have a strong and hearty love. All shall be as members having one head, one in council, one body strong and friendly. Before we are tempted to draw too neat a line, though, from the medieval guild to the modern trade union, we should add that while many of the earlier social guilds had been open to common laborers and even paupers as long as they weren't wandering beggars, the town guilds came to be increasingly dominated by the merchant class. The strong and hearty love of the Berwick guild members started to become more and more selective, exposing an intrinsic conflict of interest between the artisans and craftspeople who made things, weavers, smiths, brewers, tanners, millers, and stonecutters, and the merchants who bought and sold things. Using the political leverage of the guild to install trade barriers, the merchant class steadily became richer at the direct expense of the craftsperson. The richer one became, the less manual labor they had to do, while, conversely, the more manual labor one had to do, the poorer they found themselves. Guild membership became increasingly exclusive, the eligibility rules growing ever more specific and refined, until finally they just explicitly barred membership to anyone who practiced a trade for a living. But some craftspersons found that they were able to restore their standing somewhat. The first craft guilds, dating back to the late 11th century, were weaver's guilds. Most handicrafts at this time operated in a very local economy, 
a baker or a blacksmith were not going to find many customers outside a pretty small radius. But weavers' goods were in demand at great distances, which gave their profession a unique prestige and influence. They had little trouble persuading town officials to let them formally set the terms of their trade and thus start to claw back some of the rights and powers that had been taken away from them when they were kicked out of the merchants' guilds. This precedent cleared the way for other crafts' guilds to follow suit, Butchers, tailors, rope makers, masons, shearers, cutlers, brush makers, and numerous others. We're not quite yet at the dawn of the trade union, however. Most guild members in the Middle Ages were not what we would call today employees. Once the guild qualified a member to ply their trade as a master, he or she did so, usually he, with no boss or supervisor. Journeymen often worked for wages, it's true, but journeymen didn't control the guilds, the masters did. And unlike journeymen, and certainly unlike common laborers outside the guild system, masters didn't sell their labor, they sold the fruits of their labor, or increasingly somebody else's. In the language of a later era, they owned the means of their own production. From here we can trace the two divergent directions that crafts guilds would splinter into as more and more workers entered the crafts and trades. Just as we saw in the ascendancy of the merchants in the town guilds, as the masters grew richer, largely because they alone were permitted to hire other laborers, they began to join the newly emerging burger class, the bourgeoisie. Before long, they had no need to work at all, they could just hire all the labor they needed. Since there wasn't much reason anymore to share a fellowship society with the hired help, they eventually kicked out the journeymen and apprentices out of the guilds altogether. The clubs and associations the journeymen created in response were the earliest proto-trade unions. What was left of the old guilds became, over time, the first industrial employers' associations. It's also critical to remember that even at their zenith, medieval craft guilds excluded the vast majority of workers. Agricultural workers, serfs, and peasants comprised as much as three-quarters of the population of Europe during the Middle Ages. Their bonds were still feudal. Most weren't even allowed to travel to towns and cities for other work even if they had wanted to. After all... How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? To get their due, the peasantry would have to wait until the 14th century when the Black Death cut the labor supply nearly in half. When crops started rotting in the fields because there was no one to harvest them, the peasantry found themselves with a bargaining power that would have been hard to imagine before the plague. Meanwhile, out of the manor houses during this time came a refrain you've heard before, I guess no one wants to work anymore. Early journeymen's unions were illegal and therefore tended to be secret, so we don't have anywhere near as much information about them as we do the guilds of the same period, but we do know a little. In early 16th century Lyon, the nascent book printing industry was cloven in the way we have just described, with the master printers generally aligned with the publishers against the journeyman printers, who from their vantage point wanted too big a piece of the pie. The journeyman printers understandably felt that they were just as innately entitled to wealth and prestige as the masters were, so they formed a secret union within the larger printer's guild called the Compagnie des Grifferins, the company of the Grifferins, the name drawn from an insult hurled their way by the guild masters based on an old French word for glutton. Initiates were assigned four godfathers who would serve as their orienteers, teaching them the rules and obligations of the society, as well as the secret passphrases and handshakes that would demonstrate membership. 
Here's how the historian Nancy Zeman Davis describes their secret greeting. Two right thumbs touch. The left little finger clasps the other's left little finger. One right foot on the other's right foot. One journeyman bites the other's ear and whispers the password. Vivre les temps. Long live the times. The initiate was sworn in at a banquet, given a new name, usually something profane, and made to swear oaths to loyalty and secrecy. Finally, he would bend over a table and receive three whacks to the buttocks with a sword, completing the ceremony. The oaths each initiate swore were these. One, never work for a master who pays wages lower than the Grifferins have agreed upon. Two, never take the place of another journeyman who has been unjustly fired. Three, never act wrongly against any other printer, whether journeyman or master. Four, never work in a shop that employs forfants, which was the word for non-initiates. We might say scabs. Five, never even associate with forfants. Six, never take the side of a forfant in a fight against a grifferin, even if they are a blood relative. Your fellow grifferins are your new family now. Seven, Never reveal the rituals of the initiation ceremony. If a master printer instituted an unfair practice, the Grifferins would give him three chances to reconsider. If these were all rebuffed, a strike would be called right there on the shop floor. A strike was called a trick or a trick. The great strike or grand trick of 1539 was called in response to some masters discontinuing the common meal they had traditionally paid for as part of the workday. The strike would last three months and spread to other printing centers in France, including Paris. By this time, the Grifferins had learned to use military tactics to keep the masters from replacing them with four fonts. They formed street militia, and as they were already known as pretty good fighters, the threat of violence was often sufficient to keep the print shops idle. The European guild system endured for some time, adapting to numerous cultural changes as the Middle Ages flowed into the early modern period, but the one thing it could not contend with was the Industrial Revolution. By the 18th century, it was becoming clearer to the owners of capital that combining mechanization and open markets would yield an explosion of productivity and profit. In many trades, this meant the craft shop would soon be replaced by the factory and mill. The reigning Enlightenment philosophy of the day, with all of its glorification of individual human freedom, was enlisted to justify this new way of doing business. Guilds were simply too unfree in this view, because they infringed on the rights of both buyers and sellers to settle on a suitable price for labor and goods, and so they were outlawed to clear the way for the industrial order, first in France with the Revolution of 1789, then England and Prussia. Even Karl Marx would have to agree a half-century later that the guilds needed to go, not just because they were based on the oppression of labor-selling journeymen by the master craftsmen, but also because if society was ever going to be able to adopt a socialist mode of production, it would have to do so reliant on the abundance made possible by the new capitalist mode of production. But most social theorists of the late 1700s weren't looking quite that far ahead, and many of them embraced the simple view that still dominates much of Western political thinking two centuries later. If we can just commit to truly free markets, they will make poverty and class stratification a thing of the past. If poverty and inequality persist, it must mean our markets just aren't free enough. And so it wasn't just the guilds that were abolished, but any so-called combination that thought it was better at setting prices than the invisible hand, and that included the journeyman's unions. 
In France, the Loi Le Chapelier, passed in 1791, made labor strikes illegal. In England, the Combination Acts of 1799 banned collective bargaining altogether, both of these acts occurring at a time when the average European laborer was about to be plunged into the greatest privation Europe had seen since the 1200s. The sentiments behind the Combination Acts would be embraced by industrialists for decades to come. You may recall Lamont Bauer's crocodile tears in Episode 1 over the threat of labor monopoly. This was a popular boogeyman during the Gilded Age, and it had a long pedigree. In 1777, for example, the town of Newburyport, Massachusetts, passed a law called the Act to Prevent Oppression and Monopoly that reads as though it were written by Grover Norquist or Sam Alito, establishing the maximum wages that could be set for various jobs, but of course stipulating no minimum. The oppressors here, naturally, were the workers, and the poor victims, the employers who paid their wages. There was a day here that you can show yourself that to you belong to union. Boy, they run you out of there. They run me uh, three, four times out of camp. But I was single then, I didn't give a damn. Whether they run me out or not. Before there was a strike in southern Colorado in 1913, there was the campaign to organize the field. This came with challenges that had not been quite as pronounced in the northern field, where the United Mine Workers had found more success in 1908. One important difference between north and south in Colorado was in the degree of political control the coal companies in the south had managed to secure. For all intents and purposes, the mine operators controlled the courts, they controlled the juries, they controlled the bigger newspapers, and they controlled the police. The elected sheriffs of both Huerfano and Las Animas counties, Jefferson Farr and James Grisham, understood their positions as vassals of the coal companies and made sure their deputies, many of whom were recommended to them by the operators themselves, did likewise. Whatever the state law might say on paper, in practice, a union organizer would find no quarter in Huerfano and Las Animas counties. The United Mine Workers had tried to organize the southern fields a decade earlier, in 1903, and were crushed by the combined forces of the captive political machinery at the county level, the National Guard at the state level, and the private guards and spies on the coal company's payroll. Espionage was a particularly nasty problem for the Union, which found itself so thoroughly infiltrated by Pinkertons that individual spies sometimes unwittedly informed on each other. If you've seen the 1970 Herb Ritz film, The Molly Maguires, you might recall its depiction of the famed Pinkerton operative James McParland, played by Richard Harris, who in 1873 went undercover as a miner in the anthracite fields in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, infiltrating a labor union called the Working Man's Benevolent Association, or WBA, 
and exposing a branch of an Irish secret society called the Molly Maguires operating within its ranks. The Molly Maguires emerged in 18th century Ireland to resist the enclosure of public pasture land and other encroachments on the self-sufficiency of tenant farmers. Whether or not any actual Molly Maguires ever operated in Pennsylvania or anywhere in the U.S. a century later is still a matter of debate, but real or imaginary, they made a welcome scapegoat at a time when pro-labor sentiment ran pretty high in working communities at the apex of the Gilded Age. McParland was able to secure several convictions, the job made easier by the fact that the man who hired him, one Franklin Gower, owner of Philadelphia and Reading Coal and Iron, also happened to be the Schuylkill County District Attorney. In the end, 20 men were hanged for their alleged crimes. The WBA did not survive McParland's testimony. It was completely disbanded. In 1891, James McParland was sent to Denver to open the first Pinkerton office there, where, as superintendent, he was again tasked with infiltrating local mining unions. His most famous efforts involved penetrating the Western Federation of Miners, or WFM, a union of mostly hard rock miners who dug copper, silver, lead, and gold during conflicts in 1894, 1896, and 1903. But some Pinkertons were also hired by CF&I to help suppress the efforts of the United Mine Workers to organize soft rock miners, coal miners, in Los Animas and Fremont counties in 1903. To Fremont County, McParland sent a spy named J. Frank Strong, and to Los Animas County, he sent Robert M. Smith. Both men took jobs in the mines while they surveilled their assigned targets. Frank Strong, Operative 28, was assigned to John Gare, a member of the UMW's executive committee. Robert Smith, Operative 36, was assigned the president and secretary of District 15, William Howells and John Simpson. Each operative knew the other man by number, but not by name or face. In February 1903, when Robert Smith, Operative 36, learned that John Gare, who, recall, was Operative 28's target, not his own, was coming to Los Animas County to lead an organizing campaign in Trinidad, he decided to freelance a bit and see what he could find out by meeting with Gare when he arrived. Smith wrote in his report of the meeting that when he went to meet John Gare at his hotel, Gare insisted that Smith meet his, quote, best friend, introducing him to J. Frank Strong. As far as Smith knew, he was the only Pinkerton man in the room, and Strong probably had the same conception. While to John Gare, of course, it was merely a meeting in a hotel of three loyal and dedicated Union men. Under such conditions, an enormous amount of privileged information about strategy and tactics, places, dates, and names was easily transmitted back to the officers of CF&I, which was instrumental in their being able to put down the strike of 1903 and 1904. Ten years later, in 1913, when the United Mine Workers again set their sights on organizing the southern fields, union leaders were determined not to let their guard down as they had before, especially after their embarrassment at discovering the defection of Union President Tom Lewis to the cause of the operators. To ensure the organizers could evade the attention of informants, UMW leaders devised an inside-outside scheme consisting of 21 pairs of organizers. Each pair consisted of an active organizer, playing his role straight and out in the open, and a passive organizer who masqueraded as an anti-unionist, ingratiating himself to the guards and managers, and sometimes getting himself hired as a spotter, whose role, as far as his employer was concerned, was rooting out union agitators. 
Once the passive organizer was thus installed, the active organizer would go to work bringing mine workers into the union. Successful recruits were kept secret, their ID cards sent up to Denver for safekeeping. Miners who resisted membership would get their names passed on to the passive organizer, who would tell his new friends at the mine that such and such a worker had just joined the union. This worker invariably found himself being sent down the canyon. The active organizer would then send in one of his recruits to fill the newly opened role, carefully coaching him not to betray his union affiliation. The passive organizers drew their pay through a shell company to elude the scrutiny of any informants at the post office. Both active and passive organizers were sworn in as game wardens so they could legally carry a sidearm. Part of the brilliance of this plan was that it predicted the eventual discovery of the organizing campaign by the mine operator's espionage units, at which point the company spies would end up doing most of the heavy lifting in purging the coal fields of thousands of anti-union mine workers who they believed were dangerous labor agitators. The strategy also reinforced the coal mine operator's impression that they remained one step ahead of the union. When the strike call came, many mine operators expressed their confidence very publicly that union activity in the mines was restricted to just a few stray rabble-rousers. They appear to have been sincerely surprised when upwards of 90% of workers in the southern fields walked out on September 23. October 17, 1913, a little over three weeks into the strike, 48 strikers were arrested for picketing at the McLaughlin Mine, south of Trinidad. They were marched on foot to the county jailhouse by a handful of deputized mine guards, and picking up the rear, rolling slowly, was a vehicle not seen before on any public street. The Rocky Mountain News dubbed it the Steel Battleship a high-walled, steel-plated touring car, which the newspaper noted was so arranged that deputies on the inside may shoot their rifles in perfect safety. To help prevail where mere rifles might not suffice, the car was also equipped with a Colt Browning M1895 machine gun, which fired 450 rounds per minute. The car, which the strikers would come to call the Death Special, was modified personally by A.C. Feltz of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, using steel plates from CFNI's Pueblo Steel Plant, a private vehicle with a privately owned machine gun in it, which at this moment was pointed to the rear of the procession at the 300 or so picketers who had not been arrested to keep them from following behind while their comrades were marched off. Later in the day, the car made a fateful appearance at the Forbes tent colony about halfway between Trinidad and Ludlow. The accounts of that day are jumbled, featuring many of the same events but unfolding in different ways and in different sequences. The colony was on edge. There had been some sniper fire at Forbes the night before, or perhaps it had been that morning. The residents were in the process of moving the women and children to safer ground when some guards arrived from the nearby Forbes mine on horseback. 
or possibly they approached the colony from the death special itself after it had swung by the mine to pick them up. One of the guards may have said that they had come to disarm the colony. He had approached under truce with a white handkerchief tied to his rifle, or that may have been a second guard. The strikers might have shot at the guard with the white handkerchief as he approached. More likely, though, that was a story he made up. From what would soon happen, it seems unlikely he'd have risked advancing through rifle fire. Someone, maybe the first or second guard, assuming they weren't the same person, passed a bottle of whiskey to the miners at the camp gates to get their guard down. Or maybe no one did this. Additional cars of sheriff's deputies may have arrived up from Trinidad while all this was taking place, possibly coordinated in advance or maybe just responding to unclear events in real time. Then the man with the handkerchief threw it to the ground and hit the dirt as a signal for the guards and deputies to start shooting. Or maybe the shooting started another way, but there was definitely shooting, by rifle and machine gun, the death special having taken position about a hundred yards from the tents. Before the strikers could take cover, a miner named Luca Varnick was killed by a shot to the head. Another, named Marco Zamboni, just 18 years old, had just returned from hunting rabbits when the shooting started. He was hit five times in one leg and four times in the other. He survived, but would be crippled for life. One guard was also injured by a bullet fired from a nearby hillside. A strong rainstorm seems to have ended the heavy shooting after that, but not before 600 shots were fired into the tents, most of them from the Death Special's Colt Browning M1895. That gun was already known to many coal miners by reputation from its service the year before in West Virginia, where it was one of two such guns mounted to the Bull Moose Special, a locomotive clad in 3mm thick boiler steel. From this perch, around midnight, February 7, 1913, it fired into the tents of striking miners and their families in Holly Grove while they slept. One miner, Sesco Estep, was killed that night, and several others were injured. Many of these same tents from the colony at Holly Grove now stood pitched at Forbes and Ludlow. It would have been hard not to feel a very palpable connection between these events, separated in time by a mere eight months. Upton Sinclair included the shooting at Holly Grove in his 1919 book, The Brass Check, which criticized the media of his day in almost Chomskyan terms that will ring very familiar to those today who rue the way police murders are depicted in the passive voice as officer-involved shootings. Sinclair cited the Associated Press's report that Sesco Estep was, quote, killed last night during the rioting at Mucklow. There had, in fact, been an assault on the nearby town of Mucklow earlier that day, but no reporting put Estep there. At the time of his killing that night, he was at home, unarmed, and trying to usher his pregnant wife to safety. Another dispatch Sinclair calls upon refers to the Bull Moose Special as a Chesapeake and Ohio train, as though it were an ordinary passenger train, and not armor-plated and full of rifle-toting Baldwin Feltz men, adding that it, quote, ran for a half a mile under fire, but no one was injured. Even setting aside the bleak tactic of neglecting the deaths and injuries of those who took fire from this very train, this claim was a complete lie. The Bull Moose was not fired upon. A Baldwin Feltz agent later confirmed that there had been no fire from the tent colony whatsoever, and Estep's widow testified that no one in the camp had even heard the train approach until its guns started firing on them. Sinclair would have a lot to say in the brass key about the way the press twisted and distorted the events of the Colorado strike as well, including what I guess it's now not too early to reveal is commonly known as the Ludlow Massacre. 
But these events still lay ahead in our story, so I will leave you with this bit of foreshadowing. Ten days before the death special made its appearance on October 8, 17 mine guards assaulted the Ludlow colony on horseback, part of a broad effort to escalate the violence so that pressure could be put on the governor to send in the National Guard. No one was killed in this skirmishing, but in response to the attack, two types of pits were dug at Ludlow. To the north of the colony, rifle pits were dug into the arroyo to harden the colony's defenses and draw fire away from the tents. The second kind of pits were dug under the tents themselves, just crude trenches at first to provide shelter from sniper attacks. But over time, many of these pits were made more comfortable. The largest of them was accessible by a set of stairs and appointed with a bed. One colony resident described it as, quote, timbered up and finished nice. After the appearance of the death special, these underground rooms started to be used as birthing centers. I'm not able to identify any specific individual births that took place in any of the tent colonies during this period, but the national birth rate in 1913 was 3% a year. With a population of around 1,200 at Ludlow, there must have been a handful of births even in those first few months. And so you'll be relieved to know that there is no record of any newborn babies being killed in the violence at Ludlow in the months that followed. But for now, that's the extent of the assurance I can give you. No newborns would be killed. Produced and read to you by Chris Schoen. This episode's cold open was read by Jeff Dorchin. New episodes come out every two weeks, give or take. I'm actually finding that three weeks may be the shortest turnaround time for most of these episodes, but I may take inspiration from Mike Duncan of the Revolutions podcast and start adding in occasional supplemental episodes, slightly shorter than main episodes and minus the sound design, just to keep the feed active. If you know someone who you think might enjoy this episode, please do share it with them. At this stage, this is the best way for listeners to find the show, and there's a good chance they won't learn about it any other way. Also, if you are able, I urge you to subscribe to the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash effigypod. That's E-F-F-I-G-Y-P-O-D. Your support helps ensure I can continue to make content like this on an ongoing basis, which at this stage is still kind of an open question. Your subscription will get you early access to each episode, plus exclusive posts from me, 
and if the show becomes successful enough to warrant it, exclusive bonus material too. It doesn't cost much, tiers start at just $3 a month. Thanks for listening. Till next time, Bella Ciao.